This is Bruce Iglauer, the president and founder of Alligator Records in Chicago, and you're listening to Talking Blues. I'm sitting here in Bruce's office in Chicago, the Alligator headquarters. Tell me how long you've been in this office. Uh, I've been sitting uh, behind this desk since 1985. Uh, but the label has been in existence since 1971. So was this a big move to come here, to this physical building? Well, I, st I started the label in a one-room apartment, and my warehouse was a walk-in closet. I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor that was also my desk chair. Uh, when I got really rich and, and uh, had two records out, I moved to a two-room apartment in the same <laughs> building. Eventually, I rented a house not far from here, in the Edgewater neighborhood of Chicago on the north side, and uh, ended up running the business out of the house, of course, completely against zoning laws, uh, and living there as well uh, with a basement full of LPs and eventually a kitchen full of cassettes. And um, finally, I, I just didn't have any more space. How many cassettes or albums would you usually press initially back then? Well, it varied a great deal from artist to artist, but we might manufacture as many as 5,000, 6,000 to start with. Uh, in the beginning of the label, I could only afford to manufacture 1,000 LPs because I ran out of money. <laughs> so let me go back a ways um, to find out about your childhood. Tell me where you were born. I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, my father worked for the Michigan Municipal League writing charters for small towns that were incorporating. Then we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I spent my elementary school years. Uh, my father died when I was five. Uh, and then uh, we moved to a suburb of Cincinnati where my father's family came from. Uh, and I spent my junior high and high school years there. Then I went to Appleton, Wisconsin, to a college called Lawrence. And you'll notice that I was circling Chicago. I was north of Chicago, I was east of Chicago, I was south of Chicago, and never more than 300 or 320 miles away. I just didn't know I was headed here. Um, and I hope you don't mind me asking, but when you lose your father at such a young age, how did that affect you? When you're five years old and somebody dies, it's so just something that happens. You don't think a lot about what's going on with you psychologically. I grew up without a lot of uh, male models to, mm -hmm. to uh, model myself after. Uh, I was raised by my mother and my older sister and my grandmother. So all of my adult models and grown-up models were female. Uh, one of the results was that I always felt more comfortable in the presence of women than men. Uh, I was terrible at sports, still am. Uh, I tended to be a little more open about my emotions than a lot of guys are. And I was really bad at being macho. And I think I'm still really bad at being macho. I wish I had known my father better because everything I've learned about him, uh, I've liked and admired. Uh, he was a crusader for good government. He was outspoken on civil rights issues. He never held his tongue uh, and, and said exactly what he thought. And he was a very ethical man. I learned all that because my mother raised me to be my father, mm -hmm. and uh, she succeeded to some extent. Tell me about your mother. My mother was uh, a college-educated woman at a time when there weren't a lot of them. In fact, she had a master's degree in social work from the University of Chicago. 
Uh, she came from South Bend, Indiana, and she had grown up in a very comfortable family there, but they lost everything during the Depression. So she dropped out of college, which she had just started, and went to work wrapping packages in a department store and did that and then worked in a tuberculosis hospital until she was able to wrangle a scholarship from University of Chicago and went back to school. Wow. So my mother was kind of ahead of her time. She was very interested in government. She was very interested in, in politics. She was very interested in the roles of women. Uh, I would say that she had one foot in being a modern woman and one foot in being a woman of her era. She was born in 1913. Wow. Tell, tell me about how music came into your life. I grew up with a lot of music, but nothing like blues. Mm-hmm. I grew up with Broadway show tunes. I grew up with Rodgers and Hammerstein. And this and is mainly because of your mother. That's what my mother loved. Uh, and I can actually, and I use the term loosely, sing virtually every song from Oklahoma or South Pacific or Carousel or The King and I, uh, including the spoken introductions. Uh, not necessarily so tunefully, but I can do it. Of course, uh, you know, as a kid, I listened to plenty of rock and roll. But what was on the radio, which was top 40 singles, no, there are no album tracks being played on the radio at that time. And then I got caught up in the 1960s folk boom, and I had my acoustic guitar and my harmonica in a rack, and I was an actively bad musician, and I'm not being <laughs> modest. I could play about eight chords, and I could find maybe five or six of the appropriate notes on harmonica, and... Occasionally, I could sing in tune with my guitar. Did you actually go out and play live? I was featured vocalist in a couple of jug bands, uh, and I did one solo gig in a coffee house once. But pretty early on, I figured out that as much as I dreamed of being a musician, and mostly I dreamed, of course, of being popular and you know <laughs> being adored by women, uh, more so than creating music, but I figured out pretty early on that I was better as an entrepreneur than I was as a musician. How do you think that experience of playing, whether it was good or bad, not affected you, but what did that teach you in the later years when you dealt with musicians? I know how hard it is to walk on stage uh, and how much fear even a very experienced musician and a very good musician has in going before a new audience. Um, Albert Collins whom I worked with for a dozen years, at the end of his shows, especially when he was in a new city or a new club, would say, thank you for accepting me. And that's because he walked on, a great blues guitar player, uh, a wonderful blues singer, uh, one of the most exciting artists I've ever seen, and he walked on thinking, tonight is the night they won't accept me. Tonight is the night they won't like me. Hmm. And had to to give, you know, reach down in himself and give every night in order to reach the point where people were on their feet applauding. And then he could think, okay, I fooled them again. <laughs> okay, for, from that, the folky and the person who, who knew Broadway tunes, how did the blues come into your life? I heard a little bit of blues um, as I was listening to folk music, you know, uh, more or less interpretations by by pop folk artists. Now, let me say, I was not deeply into the uh, folklore traditions of the Americas. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know, you know what the music sounded like from the hollers of Kentucky or from the Delta. I knew what it sounded like as interpreted by, you know, nice white people who uh, uh, made commercial folk music records for audiences in the 60s, you know, the Kingston Trios and the Peter, Paul, and Marys. Um, 
until 1966. I was in college by then um, in Appleton, Wisconsin, and my sister, the smart one, was at the University of Chicago. And I found out that the University of Chicago had a folk festival. So I decided in January or early February of 66 that I'd take the, uh, the Greyhound down to Chicago, 200 miles, uh, crash with my sister, and go to this folk festival. I didn't realize that the people who were curating this festival knew a great deal about traditional American music, and they were not booking the kind of musicians I was listening to at all. They were booking the real thing. One of the real thing artists they booked at that festival was Mississippi Fred McDowell uh, from Como, Mississippi, from the, the hill country, not the, not the Delta. Mm-hmm. One man playing by himself with a slide on his finger. It might have been the first time I heard slide guitar, singing songs that he had learned in his childhood and singing songs that he had made up about his life. And it reached across rows and rows of people and grabbed me by the collar and shook me and said, wake up, wake up, this is for you. And Fred changed my world. Wow. I went back to Appleton, Wisconsin, to the one record shop, and I ordered the one Fred McDowell record that we could find in a catalog. It took them nine months to find a copy. It was on the almost unknown Arhuli label. So I learned a little about independent blues labels, even with the very first blues record that I ordered. Wow. By the time it arrived, I had already discovered Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf, as well as, because I was more of a folky, I liked you know, solo artists, so I discovered Sunhouse and Big Joe Williams, Skip James, um, and also the Paul Butterfield Band, who were a very important bridge-making uh, band for, for folkies, actually. In 1965, Electra Records, which was primarily known as a folk label, released a sampler, a $2 sampler called Folk Song 65. And there amongst all of the acoustic artists, you know, the, the uh, um, Mark Spoolstras and uh, the, the uh, uh, Tom Rushes and people like this, was one track by the completely unknown Paul Butterfield Blues Band, born in Chicago. And it was an eye-opener to me. I had never heard music, electrified music, quite like that before. Um, Just like with Fred McDowell seeming to be so honest and so unvarnished and so real and making other things that that I had listened to seem much more plastic, uh, Butterfield opened my ears to Chicago blues. And I have to say, admit that I discovered Butterfield before I discovered Muddy Waters or Harlan Wolf. How do you distinguish the two, the acoustic versus the electric blues, in your mind? Like, how did it affect you? Was it the same, or was it very different? Uh, good question. The acoustic blues was more personal. It was more intimate. It was the sense of being in somebody's living room, if you like. Uh, I remember after one University of Chicago Folk Festival, uh, I, because I came every year after that, I went to a party with Reverend Gary Davis playing. And I sat literally at his feet. And that was the way I perceived acoustic blues. Of course, in the South, people danced to acoustic blues. Of course, it could be projected as being bigger. And of course, uh, people bought national steel guitars so they could be as loud as possible. So, so everyone could hear them and people could dance to them. But to me, it was, it was a more personal thing. The thing that struck me about electric blues was... The, the power, the rawness, uh, the, the amount of projected emotion. Um, people say, you know, what do you look for in artists? And my first answer is always passion. 
Mm-hmm. And in both forms of blues, I felt passion. But in electric blues, it projected further. It wasn't living room music. Uh, it was at least bar music. Is the blues the reason you found yourself in Chicago? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, I started doing the blues show on my college radio station. I acquired the very few blues records that I could find uh, because it was right in the period when blues was ceasing to be a pop music for black radio. Right. Uh, on black radio, it had always been about singles, just like rock and roll radio. If 78s and then 45s. There were relatively few blues LPs. There were some blues LPs of, of what we'll call folk blues artists who had appeared at the Newport Folk Festival, like Skip James and Mississippi John Hurt and Sun House. And then there were a few electric blues albums, most of which were comprised of tracks that had been released as singles. So when I bought The Best of Muddy Waters on Chess, he hadn't gone into a studio to record an album. They had compiled his singles over a number of from over a number of years. Right. Um, so, so I did the radio show, and at some point in one of my folk music magazines, I read the fateful words at the end of a blues record review. And if you ever want to hear this music in person, go to Chicago and find Bob Kester at Jazz Record Mart at 7 West Grand, the proprietor of the Delmark Records label, and he'll take you out to the south side or the west side in the black neighborhoods to hear the blues in its real environment. How many people took up on that article? I mean, I can't imagine how many people went to see <laughs> Well, you'll, you'll find this particularly amusing because it was written by Richard Flohill, and it was at a Canadian wow. magazine called Hoot. Yeah, okay. That I picked up at a folk festival in the summer of 1965. So you did take his advice and go down to... It took a little while. I talked my student activities committee into letting me go to Chicago and find a blues band to book for a fall concert. And the only thing I knew when I arrived in Chicago, again on the Greyhound bus, was Bob Kester, Jazz Record Mart, 7 West Grand, Chicago. Other than that, I didn't have a clue. So I I located the store. I was surprised at how small and seedy it was. Paint peeling off the walls, lots of dust everywhere. And this man behind the counter, Bob Kester, who seemed to know everything in the world about both blues and jazz, and having a strong opinion on absolutely every subject, including (laughs) U.S. foreign policy, uh, what records his customers should buy. He would literally berate customers in the store for buying the wrong Gene Ammons record, and exactly how to correctly sweep the floor. And he'd, in the middle of berating a customer about the wrong Gene Ammons record, or talking about Frank Teschemacher and the Austin High Gang of of, uh, uh, white traditional jazz musicians, or Lester Melrose and recording uh, blues in the 1930s, he'd uh, he'd berate his, his staff for sweeping the floor incorrectly. <laughs> uh, you know, I have this new book out yes. called Bitten by the Blues, which uh, talks about the first time I walked into the Jazz Record Mart, and I recreated in one sentence uh, one of Bob Kester's monologues about, about music, about buying the wrong Gene Abbott's record, about <laughs> sweeping the floor incorrectly, and about UN foreign po- U.S. foreign policy. It's 11-line, single sentence. And at the end of it, I say something like, I was overwhelmed. I thought, I want to grow up and be that guy. Wow. Um, What was it like just coming into Chicago? I I know the purpose was the blues, and the purpose was to to go to the um, Jazz Record Mart. But beyond that, that first time you stepped off the bus or the train and walked into the city of Chicago. What, what was that like for you? 
I grew up in very safe places. Um, in, in Grand Rapids, for example, I asked my mother once, you were working. We came home from school. How did we get in the house? I don't remember having a key. She said, <laughs> we left the house unlocked. <laughs> that was true in Ann Arbor. It was true in Grand Rapids. It was true in, in the suburb of Cincinnati. And then I went to a nice, safe liberal arts college in a nice, safe, uh, middle-class Wisconsin town uh, full of middle-class white kids. So I didn't know anything about inner cities. Uh, I'd been to downtown Cincinnati, and that was about it. So when I arrived in Chicago, and especially when I first went to the west side, you know, to uh, an all-black part of the city, I was very taken aback by just the the amount of grit by the you know burnout buildings by the falling down buildings uh of course the congestion and the the number of people uh in downtown was was uh, a little overwhelming but it still seemed nice and safe so it was more as i got into the inner city that i began to have uh, a, a very different experience from anything i had grown up with I can imagine. So did Bob take you to see some blues artists? Well, actually, Bob didn't think I was worthy of his taking me. He assigned me to one of his staff, uh, who turned out to be John Fischel, who was absolutely crucial in creating the 1969 and 1970 Ann Arbor Blues Festivals, but who was working for Bob at the time. And we went out on the bus, because John didn't have a car, on the bus down West Madison Street, uh, right through the heart of the Black West Side, you know, in an area that is now pretty famous for people getting murdered all the time, uh, to Eddie Shaw's club in the 4400 block of West Madison Street, which was a storefront club, and it was a Monday, and there were, I didn't know about Blue Monday parties, you know, the, the jam sessions when the musicians who weren't working on Monday would go and compete with the ones with the other ones to try to get the attention of clubs for a gig or just to be competitive. So I went on a Blue Monday to Eddie Shaw's club on the west side, and that was my first exposure to blues in its real environment. And, and how did that strike you? Well, I was a little nervous. Uh, I don't think I had been in a situation before where I was, in this case, one of two white people. Uh, but I perceived pretty quickly that everybody was friendly enough or ignoring us enough I didn't expect that the musicians would be right in front of me, that there would be no stage, that the band would just be set up in the corner. And it was very, people were very friendly with one another. There was a lot of sense of uh, a gang of people who, and I don't mean a street gang of people, (laughs) I mean a bunch of people who knew each other or knew of each other or had a lot in common with one another and were there to have fun. There wasn't any sense of, you know, this is a serious musical experience. It was entirely, we're going to our neighborhood blues bar, listen to the music we love, and hang out with our friends. So is it correct to say that your idea of blues changed that night? I had bought the Chicago The Blues Today series of three albums on Vanguard Records, a groundbreaking uh, series produced by Sam Charters that I would recommend to anybody. Mm And I'd seen pictures of what were described uh, on the back of the LPs as Chicago tenements. So I was expecting really rough places. I mean, rough both the falling down buildings, you know, and and, uh, rats running across the floor and people getting knifed in the corner. 
and I was very surprised that these were working class. They were simple working class bars. You know, Eddie Shaw, when I went there, was was behind the bar. He was bartending. And Eddie was a bigger than life, you know, presence, uh, not only as a saxophone player, but as a person. And he was kind of the master of ceremonies of the whole scene. So nobody was getting knifed in the corner. I didn't see a single rat. Uh, and, the, you know, the club was, was reasonably pleasant and clean. It wasn't it wasn't fancy. There wasn't carpet on the floors. There wasn't, you know, there weren't nice draperies or anything. But I felt perfectly comfortable there uh, once I realized that nobody cared that I was there. So was blues basically uh, a neighborhood gathering music? It's not like something you would put on a pedestal. At the time I came to Chicago uh, to live, I, I first came in, in, in 68 or 69, but as, when I moved here, the, literally January 1st, 1970, there was no blues on the white north side at all. It was all on the south side and the west side in black areas of the city. I hesitate to call them neighborhoods because they're ghettos. Right. I mean, there are people live there not just because they want to be amongst people they're comfortable with, but because there was very restricted housing in the city of Chicago. There was what was called redlining. It was very hard for black people to even rent an apartment anywhere but in areas that had been declared by the real estate interests with red lines on a map, that's where redlining was, to be acceptable for black people. So not many black people ventured out of, of those parts of the city to try to live because they had already discovered in the course of, for example, when Martin Luther King uh, led led civil rights marches here that literally, for example, Ashland Avenue at that time, on the south side, one side was white and one side was black, and nobody crossed the street. Hmm. And when Martin Luther King marched, the white people across the street threw rocks. So why would you want to move, in, to move into a neighborhood where people were going to throw rocks at you? And especially if you're going to have a hard time finding anywhere that would rent to you. Can I ask so, you? so the 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 scene in the ghetto uh, was uh, very much a uh, a gathering of people who had a lot in common with one another, one another. Almost always Southern-born people, Southern-rooted people who'd grown up with the blues, uh, who had listened to the blues literally in the cradle, uh, who had come to Chicago specifically to find jobs to get out of segregation, which had been legal up until just a few years before in the South, and to get out of the even more endemic racism of the South, to move to Chicago where you can get a factory job and maybe one day buy a house, uh, own a car, uh, do things you couldn't do down South. Coco Taylor and her husband came here at the back, in the back of a Greyhound bus. Even after they got out of the South, they were afraid to move to the front of the bus because black people were supposed to sit in the back of the bus. She said they came with 35 cents and a box of Ritz crackers. Wow. And she's probably was probably exaggerating a little bit, but not very much. People came to work, and both she and her husband found work very quickly in Chicago, labor jobs, but work, you know, and dignified work. And in his case, the possibility of getting into a union. She was a domestic, but he could get into a union and have you know, guaranteed wages and, and some benefits and, and things that he, they couldn't have possibly gotten down south. So people like Coco and her husband were the patrons of the blues clubs. Uh, blues was already considered to be uh, music that wasn't very um, 
very upscale. Blues was always working class, you know, poor people music. Middle class black people tended to look down on on blues as either because it wasn't religious, because, you know, people spent Saturday night out dancing and drinking, uh, listening to blues, and then they didn't come to church on Sunday, or because it was considered crude. So, uh, you know, I heard blues... Uh, you know, referred to as, you know, really as poor people's music or even amongst younger black people, and I hate this, as Uncle Tom music or slavery time music. Um, A lot of people who came north and got those good jobs wanted to put that behind them uh, and to move on to what they perceived as more sophisticated, more urban and more urbane forms of music. Jazz, vocal groups, you know, stack, soul, whatever, the point being not not something as raw as blues. When you were growing up, how much exposure did you have to the black population? Uh, very little. Um, I My suburban high school had maybe 25 black kids out of 600, uh, and they very much kept to themselves. Right. Uh, I remember in the cafeteria, they all sat together all the time. Um, my grandmother on my father's side, um, had enough money. So she had a cook housekeeper, uh, who was black named Mitty Evans. And I, Mitty and I were devoted to each other. And when I visited with my grandmother, I'd spend all my time in the kitchen, hanging out with Mitty, who my family was, my family loved me, but my family was very, uh, they didn't hug a lot. They didn't kiss a lot. They didn't show a lot of emotion. Mitty was easy with hugs, and I was, it was an easy to hug, mm-hmm. and I did that quite often. Oh, that's interesting. So, but, but uh, would you say her involvement in your life um, not helped you or shaped you in a way that when going into these clubs, you didn't feel as intimidated? I felt pretty intimidated. <laughs> okay. um, I had been in some civil rights marches, not any dangerous ones, no water cannons or dogs. Right. In Milwaukee, you know, people had thrown eggs at us, not rocks, you know, or, or Molotov cocktails. Um, my father, as I said, was very outspoken about civil rights issues. And my mother, very early on, talked to me about race and talked to me about not being confused about what people were based on the color of their skin and that people were people and there were good ones and bad ones in all right. in all groups. And it strongly encouraged me to have uh, a, a, a very public social conscience on this subject. Uh, you know, I was in college when Martin Luther King was murdered. Uh, I didn't realize because it was mostly, you know, on the news. It was mostly in the newspaper, on TV. I didn't realize how horrible an event this was for black people throughout this country because the greatest symbol of hope was stolen away, was ripped from them. And it was incredibly discouraging. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not really even qualified to talk about this. I observed this. I didn't have to feel it or live it. What's kind of amazing to me is when I moved to Chicago in 1970 and was often the only white person in a club or one of two or three, that there was so little anger directed at me because it had been less than two years since Martin Luther King had been murdered. And and 
people had every right to be angry, to be furious. Uh, and, and yet, very rarely did I find anybody who took that anger out on me. When you moved to Chicago, did you know that you were going to be involved in the blues? Like, did I, you did you go see, did you go, I know you went to work for Bob, but I... I, I was going to come to Chicago for a year. What happened was in late 1969, after I brought Howlin' Wolf to my college, and the college did a lousy job promoting the concert, I then brought Luther Allison out of my own pocket and promoted the concert myself, and um, it was a big success. I'm now pointing to the Luther Allison poster from that concert on, on the wall of my office. Um... Uh, and, and Luther was uh, just about to release his first album, which was on Delmark. So I had already hinted to Bob about, uh, Bob Kester about a job. And, and then in, in late 1969, I was eligible for the draft to you know, go into the military and potentially go to Vietnam. And there was a lottery. And I got a really good number uh, based on my birthday. And I knew I wasn't going to have to go into the Army or flee to Canada. Can you explain the lottery system to me? It was very simple. It was, they said that probably the first, no more than the first hundred uh, numbers drawn would would uh, be uh, likely to be drafted. And it was by birth date. So they just had a big bin and somebody reached in and pulled out a, a piece of paper and it said July 10th. And July 10th was number 287. That's my birthday. So I knew at that time I was, wasn't going to have to go into the military. Wow. It was on the radio. It was, you know, everything at my college stopped. And people just were glued to the radio to listen to this lottery. And how, how did you feel about the possibility of fighting for the country? Well, I didn't think it was fighting for the country. That's true. Um, you know, I would, have, I would have enlisted in World War II. My father tried to, um, but he had health problems. Um, Vietnam was was wrong. Mm-hmm. It was a it we should we were on the wrong side. We were on the wrong side of history, and by that time I knew it. Now I won't tell you I wasn't scared. I was scared, but I had marched against the war more than once, and I believed the war was completely wrong. And I think history has proven all of us who marched against the war to be absolutely correct. Um, just like the Iraq invasion was completely wrong headed, uh, for different reasons. Right. Um, so I was scared, uh, and I was, and I was determined that I wasn't going to go. Would I have gone to prison as a conscientious objector? I don't know. Uh, would I have fled to Canada? I thought about it. Would I have shot myself in the foot like somebody I know did? Maybe. (laughs) Um, tell me what you learned from putting on these concerts in your college. I thought that. There were a lot of people who, if they got turned on to this music, would love it, just like I had. That the problem was not that the music was foreign to people of my generation, but rather that they just weren't exposed to it. Because it was so exciting and so energetic and, and could be so much fun. Uh, so when I brought Luther, when I brought Howlin' Wolf, I counted on the school to do the promotion. I just arranged for him to be there. I didn't pay him. Right. Um, when I brought Luther Allison, I was risking my own money. I did it under the uh, arm of the Student Activities Committee. I basically said, if I will pay everything, will you put on a concert? So you have no work to do. 
so I, I was determined to do it right. And I printed three different posters of different sizes. I started promoting the, the date about five weeks before the concert. I drove 100 miles. By then I had a car. I drove 100 miles in every direction, putting up posters. I uh, uh, promoted it on my own college radio station. Uh, and we sold out a show. I mean, sold out was 400 And it was, as you see, $2 at the door, a fortune. Um, and there were people waiting. And I actually gave Luther an additional $100. And he did another set for the people. And we let in the people who were waiting free uh, because they had waited for three hours. I presume he was as good as he always was. Well, he was, looking back, you know, Luther, Luther later in his career became uh, just a terrific songwriter mm -hmm. and uh, wrote very passionate songs, some of them about social issues, some of them about black-on-black -black violence, some of them about white-on-black violence, uh, and some of them just fun and great. I mean, he could, he could sing, you know, uh, I live in a big city and they say I'm free, and the next song could be Party Time in Memphis. So uh, at that time, Luther wasn't much of a songwriter. He did mostly cover songs. But I didn't know that many songs, so it didn't bother me. But he was thrilling live. Uh, you know, it was a trio. He took every solo. There was He sang every song uh, and played for three hours straight. I remember at the end of the night, you know, not only was he soaked in sweat, but he only had three strings left on his guitar. <laughs> he, Luther loved to perform, and Luther would throw himself into every performance uh, he never held back. That's one of the things I loved about him. It's one of the things I love about blues. You know, and Alligator has always been about recording mu music that wasn't cool, that wasn't reserved, that wasn't uh, uh, in some sort of an aura, but it was just, it just laying the, the emotions right out there. Uh, you know, I want soul-to-soul -soul communication from Alligator artists to the audiences. So with Luther, I thought, okay, I, I think I can find an audience for this. And I proved to myself that I could. Uh, after the concert, Luther and the band, all three of them, came back to my student apartment and spent the night, crashed, crashed there. I slept on the floor. Luther slept on my mattress on the floor. Um, and I thought, I've kind of been accepted. I've kind of been uh, um, made a part of this community a little bit. But when I came to Chicago, after talking Bob Kester into hiring me as a part-time shipping clerk for $30 a week, uh, I never worked a part-time day the entire time I was, <laughs> I was at Delmark and, and Jazz Record Mart, um, I came expecting to stay for a year. I intended to go to graduate school um, and become... What, what, what would you have gone for? Uh, well, my, my, I majored in everything that didn't involve math or science, uh, so... Uh, my final, I majored in English, I majored in history. My final graduating major was in theater, but I wasn't a good actor. But I loved history, and I loved history of the theater. So I was going to teach. I was going to become a theater historian uh, and, you know, get a faculty job at some small college and uh, try to convince them I should direct a play now and then because I thought I could do that. Wow. And I and I, you know, I had been accepted for grad school, uh, and never went. Uh, you know, I came here for a year and stayed for the rest of my life. When you started um, Alligator, which is, I, I understand from, because of your belief in Hound Dog Taylor, did you know what you wanted Alligator to do? Did you have an idea of 
what you hoped that it would accomplish? <laughs> when I released that first Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers record, you know, the thousand copies that I could press, my big dream was make enough money so I could make a second album by somebody else. And then I did one with Big Walter Horton and Carrie Bell. And then my dream was sell enough of that so I could make a third album. Uh, and I was releasing about one record a year. Uh, one year between... Um, 1971 and 1978, I think I released two records. And you were really working these records, right? Like you were taking the records in your car and driving all over the place and sending Well, it was a great time for radio when I started. Um, progressive rock or freeform FM radio, um, playing album tracks uh, with DJs programming their own shows. Uh, you know, much like what happens in, in community radio now. But as a commercial format... It had sprung up in the late 60s and lasted without uh, much in the way of playlists until the mid-1970s. So I started in 71, and there were stations uh, you know, basically being programmed by people very much like me. Let's call them 60s college students. Or uh, you know, the, when I was in the, in the black clubs, uh, every once in a while, you know, as I said, somebody was a little threatening, and, and usually some of the other patrons would say, leave the hippie alone. <laughs> so I wasn't really a hippie, but people who might have been defined as hippies were programming these radio stations. And I, could I knew had a list of the stations, and I drove from city to city, meeting DJs as they went on the air, handing them a personal copy of my Hound Dog Taylor LP and begging them to play it. And because they didn't have playlists and they didn't have music directors, they didn't have program directors, and there were no rules, they often just put it on the air right then because they liked the cover. <laughs> or because I was so eager and I had big hair and a big beard and they thought, this is a guy like me. You know, this isn't some slick record guy. Uh, and I remember almost nobody was reaching out to these stations with, with blues recordings. I begged Bob Kester at Delmark to service some of these stations, and he was dubious. He, he came to blues from jazz, and he sent a lot of blues records to jazz people, but not too many to, to uh, uh, hippie, hippie radio programmers. So I remember somebody getting this record and saying, wow, this station doesn't even get serviced with B.B. King records. Wow. Uh, so... I made a lot of personal contacts, and I did this with my first five albums, uh, driving different parts of the country, and, and those some of those radio contacts lasted for for decades. By the mid '70s, though, they had discovered that they could could attract listeners enough so that they weren't just getting advertisers like the local waterbed store, uh, that they could get national advertisers, and very quickly after that. Those playlists began, first there were playlists, then they began tightening up. And by tightening up, I mean more and more rock right. and less and less anything else. And tightening up also meant whitening up. How did that affect your business How did or your approach to promoting your artists? Well, I realized that I was going to have a hard time reaching those potential blues fans that I had set out to reach both with my Luther Allison concert and with going to this kind of radio. I kept in touch with all the radio that seemed still open to what we were doing. I worked my press contacts a lot, but I also realized that maybe I was going to have to sometimes resign myself to selling and reaching only to people who had already established themselves as blues fans. It was frustrating. 
it's all it's been frustrating ever since because I believe that this music is so exciting that you could grab 50 people off the street who had never heard live blues and you put them in a club in front of the right blues artist that half of them would want to come back, even if they had never heard blues before in their lives. What was it that you learned back then that still holds true today? I know the business has changed drastically, but... The business has changed hugely, and that's a, a separate subject. But what I've learned that applies is honest, passionate music that musicians throw themselves into and don't hold back and don't try to be slick will find some audience because it's so directly emotional that people who hear it can't deny it. I also believe that blues could have a much larger audience if there were some way that I could reach that much larger audience, and I keep trying. I believe that the thing that builds a blues artist's career more than anything else is being in front of live audiences, more so than making records. You know, people think there's some magic to making records. There are 90,000 new records released in the United States every year, just in the United States. About 20,000 of them are digital only, maybe more now. The number that sell 1,000 copies is in the low thousands. The number that sell 10,000 copies is probably less than 1,000. So people think there's some magic to having a record out. Most records disappear. It's only if you have a record out and you have people like myself and my wonderful crew of 14 employees working that record to the media, work, uh, trying to, to create excitement around the artist, that those records succeed and that artists build careers. But above all, it is about career building with the blues. It's not about, I'm going to have a hit. I've had a couple artists who said, Lonnie Brooks was a good example, who was with me for, for decades um, you know, from Louisiana um, and uh, came to Chicago and was a stalwart on the West Side. And then uh, we, I began to expose him through our Living Chicago Blues series and anthologies in the late 1970s. And he said, all I need is that one song, that one radio song, you know, and I'll be famous. And I tried to explain to him that those things don't just happen, that it isn't just the song, that tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars are spent getting the attention of radio programmers, trying to, making videos, trying to buy your way onto late night television, uh, all kinds of, of things that involve huge expenditures and massive organizations like the, the so-called major labels uh, that have staffs, you know, 20 times larger than mine, that I, I'm never going to give somebody a hit I, because hits don't just happen. You know, uh, you you start by hiring independent promotion people mm -hmm. just to present the song to radio programs to to get them to take it seriously. Uh, you know, you spend thousands of dollars in advertising directed at radio, directed at media, and then now you've got you know, the, the, the streaming services, which are just so hard to penetrate. Right. Um, but if we do what we do right, we can build careers. And musicians who want to be blues musicians or roots musicians, because our definition of blues has broadened over the years, if everything happens right, if they work their butts off, 
if they make the right records, if we manage to connect with the right media people, we can build a career for somebody and they can play music they love to play for the rest of their lives and make a decent living. And that's success by alligator standards. How long did it take you to figure that out? At what point in alligator's history did you think, okay, this is the way it should be? It was a, it wasn't a revelation. It was a, uh, you know, a process of over a period of time. But when I started working with Hound Dog Taylor, you know, that band, those three guys, two guitars and drums, no bass, those guys were playing in small clubs on the south side of Chicago. They were the cheapest blues band on the south side. They were $10 a man on the weeknights and $15 a man on the weekends, and that was negotiable. Right. <laughs> Three guys. So when I brought them out of Chicago, the first thing I had to do was get them gigs. So I became a booking agent. Uh, I realized I had to get people at the gigs, so I became a publicist. Uh, I needed to help them protect their music, so I became a song publisher. Uh, I became a radio promotion man. I became a road manager. Uh, you know, I became... The, the guy who packs the boxes and the guy who sells LPs at the gigs because I saw that all these things needed to be done and nobody else was there to do them. I was dealing with people who struggled to read and write. They didn't struggle to be smart. They were savvy people, but they were very much self-taught. You know, Howard Taylor left the South when somebody burned a cross in front of his shack. You know, he fled and slept in drainage ditches. You know, he struggled to read. You know, Brewer Phillips worked construction during the summer, the other guitar player, and and played music during the winter when it was too cold to do, do construction. And Ted Harvey, the drummer, worked on a loading dock. You know, these were not people who had had much formal education. So they needed somebody like me to do all these other things for them so they could get on stage or into a recording studio and play music in a way that I could never have done in a million years. Was there ever a point where you thought, eh, maybe this isn't going to work out? Or did you ever... <laughs> was there ever a point when I didn't think that? <laughs> yes, there was a point when I didn't think that. From roughly the early to mid-1980s, uh, when we had a success with Albert Collins, when Coco Taylor, whose first album on Alligator didn't do well at all, when Coco Taylor began becoming recognized as the queen of the blues, uh, when we made a career for Sun Seals as, you know, at least a journeyman blues artist and Lonnie Brooks. And then when we uh, were approached by and signed Johnny Winter, uh, which was a big deal in the, in the eyes of the public and the media, we got to a point where I could make a mistake without the whole company collapsing. So you feel like before then, um, one mistake could have resulted in... Well, I made plenty of mistakes, but they... When I had one record, if I hadn't sold enough of that record, you know, and I sold 9,000 the first year, which by by blues standards, a hit, uh, you know, for a record that was made in two nights in the studio, you know, uh, for a $900 studio bill. Right. Uh, And... uh, and Sun Seals, for example, I couldn't I couldn't sell Sun Seals records. You know, I, I put them out there. He was a young, unknown artist. And by then, radio, even in 73, radio was already tightening up. And if and I realized that I damn well better do another How Dog Taylor record because he was the only artist I was really selling. Uh, you know, I, I had thought I'd do one record. There were so many blues artists in this city. 
just in the city, much less in the country. I thought I'd do one record by Hound Dog Taylor, then I'd do one by Big Walter, then by Sun Seals, then Fenton Robinson. I wouldn't come back to an artist because I'd just be doing new records by by qualified artists all the time. Well, I realized that suddenly I needed, by my definition, another hit. Mm. <laughs> so I did a second record with Hound Dog Taylor. I was scared because I was already draining his repertoire. Uh, luckily, uh, you know, between what he wrote and what he put together and what I found, and uh, you know, we were able to do a good second album. Uh, but it involved a lot of thinking, which the first album didn't at all. Thinking by me about how to get the album together. So from the mid-1980s until roughly 1999, as the company grew, and it grew out of my apartment into a house, out of my house into a building and into another building, uh, I have a warehouse down the street, uh, grew from me working by myself to myself and 22 employees. Uh, all that time was fairly steady growth. Now, you know, there were periods, you know, there were, there were economic recessions, there were vinyl shortages when I couldn't make LPs. I smartly, and I talk about this a lot in the book, um, I committed to CDs very early and uh, took a huge risk. I risked the whole company on CDs. If CDs had not worked out for us and it wasn't clear they were going to, I would have lost the company. What was the thinking then? How did you decide that you were going to commit to CDs? I... When it bought a few, uh, not blue CDs, because there were hardly any blue CDs available, I realized that they were hard to break, that they were hard to damage compared to LPs, that they sounded good, they didn't wear out as you played them over and over, and that they were very portable as compared to LPs. You know, when, when I started, there were distributors in every city in the country, multiple distributors, because you couldn't be shipping LPs around the country to different warehouses. You know, there were 100 local record stores, so there were 15 local distributors to sell those to those 100 local record stores. And, you know, there was a distributor in Chicago and one in Indianapolis and one in Detroit and one in, in Cleveland, you know, even a few hundred miles apart or less. Uh, but CDs changed all of that because... They were easy to move around the country. They were light. They didn't break as easily. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, UPS and, and FedEx had become very efficient organizations. Uh, and there were less and less record stores because there were consolidation and chains that bought centrally. So it began to move to having one national distributor instead of distributors in every city. So I saw CDs and I thought, this is going to change things. Now, at first, I was completely befuddled because I figured I'd need to buy a whole bunch new stereo equipment in order to play them. Right. And I discovered, I went out and got a CD Walkman, plugged it into my existing stereo system, and wow, I just spent 100 bucks, and now I can play CDs. And I'll get one of these for my car. And, of course, the car, having good sound in your car instead of crappy-sounding cassettes, that changed a lot. Right. So I thought, this technology is going to work. You know, this is gonna this is gonna stick, and I'm gonna risk on it. Now, the same year that I thought about doing that, I thought I want to make one of these some of these CD-ROM things. I never got around to doing that, and I thought that was gonna be a great idea, and those were disasters and <laughs> disappeared immediately. So I made the right choice. Did the approach to recording an artist differ from album to CDs? A little bit. Um, CDs held more music. 
You know, you you make an al- album, an LP, longer than about 24 minutes aside, and you have to lower and lower, lower the level because the grooves get narrower and narrower. Right. And then you've got to uh, uh, worry about surface noise because it becomes louder in comparison to the music. Uh, so now suddenly I had this palette initially... Uh, I, 70 minutes, I think, you could hold on a CD. And, and then it got up to 80. Uh, and I thought, wow, I can give the people more music. So for a while I did. And then I discovered that nobody heard the last four songs on the CD. <laughs> you know, somebody said, and, uh, and I can't quote who it was, but they said very correctly, the trouble with CDs is now every album you own is too long. Those 20 minutes aside on LPs, those were great listening bites that you could sit and really pay attention to 20 minutes. That's why everybody knows every song on Sgt. Pepper, because it was only 20 (laughs) minutes aside. And you'd have two A tracks. You know, you'd have your, you could have two first tracks, you know, your first on side A and your first on side B. So you'd put your two best songs opening each side. How does today's world of streaming change your business or your approach to recording? Strangely, what's happened is we've reverted, first with downloads and now with streaming, to a singles culture. Uh, you know, I started making albums. I grew up on singles, uh, at least on the rock and roll side of things. And I thought, if I'm interested in an artist, I want to hear more than one song. Uh, of course, once the, the, the Beatles came with, you know, with albums that were worth listening to and not padded with with a bunch of filler and everybody else began doing the same thing, it seemed reasonable. You make an album. Mm-hmm. It's a statement. Uh, and people bought albums. I didn't, I released three forty fives in an attempt to get some airplay on black radio, which I failed to do. Um, but I was committed to albums. Uh, when, when iTunes started, uh, well, first of all, when people started discovering that they could take a CD, rip the songs off into MP3s and email them to all their friends, or they could go to Napster and, and just get the music illegally, um, everything began changing. And with iTunes, uh, some people downloaded albums, but many people downloaded individual songs. Uh, artists began releasing individual songs, not necessarily for radio, but just to kind of keep a buzz going about their careers. Uh, you know, this happened a lot. We continued to release albums, and our most of our customers continued to buy them. But with I, when iTunes came in, uh, and we began getting paid for those downloads, and and after quite as it's kept, uh, when iTunes started, they were going to pay a different rate to independent labels than they were to the major labels, to the multinationals. And uh, the organization, uh, the American Association for Independent Music, which was a fledgling organization of labels at that time, went to iTunes and said, you don't really want us to publicize that you're screwing the independent labels, do you? You really don't want to have that black mark on your company as you launch to be, you know, the guys who are in bed with the big boys. And they went, "Uh, you know, you're right. And they raised our rate to be the same as as the majors. And that stayed that way ever since, to their credit. So people began buying singles. Much of our audience, you know, I started, I was 23 years old when I started Alligator. And now, God help me, I'm 71. 
I've been doing this every day, literally every day since then. Because you even, don't have a day my, off, right? even on my one day honeymoon. No, I've I've taken about I've taken about five days off. Uh, oh, I'm I'm lying. I took an actual vacation in 1979 with a woman I thought I was going to marry. I went to Mexico for ten days. After about five days, I figured I I wasn't going to marry her, <laughs> but I had already bought the ticket. So. Uh, at any rate, uh, no, I don't take days off. I work less on the weekends than I do on the weekdays. Uh, our customers have aged with me. I would love to see more 20-year-olds in, in blues audiences than I do, but I see a lot of people who are 50, 60, 70 years old. They grew up buying albums. They don't, they're not interested in downloads very much. Mm-hmm. They're not interested in singles. They want to own their music. They like this ownership. You know, I use Lyft and Uber, but I still own a car. Right. And I'm probably going to own a car for the rest of my life. Uh, and and people want to own music. But as it's happened with with uh, younger customers, there's wanting to access music. Like, you know, I have Netflix. I don't think, wow, I just watched a movie last night. Now I really want to own it. Right. I just think, okay, if I like it, I'll might watch it again sometime. That's how, what's happened to the consumption of music. So companies like Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon Music Unlimited and Google Play have gotten into the streaming business. Streaming companies are not covered as far as royalty rates under any law. Now, neither is iTunes, but iTunes pays what I consider to be a fair rate, and I think pretty much everybody in the industry is okay with what they pay. Spotify has become a powerhouse. It's a multinational company. It's the most popular streaming service, although Apple Music is right on its heels, at least in the U.S. And the prices that they pay are based on two different things. For their free service at Spotify, it's based on a percentage of advertising income that is split up pro rata amongst the, all the tracks that are played and how many times they are played. With the subscription service, it's a percentage of the subscription income. In the case of Apple Music, they only have subscription income, no advertising. So it's a percentage of that. The point being that the amount you get paid for a single song being streamed can vary a great deal because it's a piece of the pot of money so what you sort of want is you want a lot of people to subscribe but not really play very much music so that each play pays more. Because right. the more music they play, each, each play, each stream pays less. Now, we've done a little bit of math. And with the streaming services, if a song is streamed about 230 times... We get as much money if, as if that song was downloaded from iTunes once. Wow. So 230 streams, we get about 70 cents. Out of that, we pay the artist and all the costs we have involved in making the recording. Of the streaming companies, to their credit, pay the song publishers, who then pay the songwriters. With iTunes, we have to pay the song publishers. That's our job. And then they pay the writers. So with iTunes, there's more that comes off the top before we put some in our pocket. But it's off the top of a substantial amount of money, if you consider 70 cents to be a substantial amount of money. 
we typically right now have every six months we do royalty statements and typically we are figuring out the income from two or three million individual streams. Uh, we literally discovered that we do these on Excel spreadsheets. We literally discovered you can break Excel. Excel won't, won't take more than a million individual entries. You have to literally cobble two Excel spreadsheets together so you can get two million. Uh, and and we, <laughs> we do this every six months to pay out tinier and tinier amounts of money to the artists and, of course, to us. One of the secrets of, well, not very secret secrets, of working with, with uh, uh, streaming services is people like playlists, users like playlists. So we lobby as hard as we can to these companies to get information to the curators of these playlists, the people who decide what, go on the, what goes on the playlists, uh, to add our music. Uh, it's, it's what we have to do. I do this almost, some of this almost every day. Um, yesterday, Living Blues Magazine published its November radio chart. And I copied that radio chart and sent it to my contacts at all these streaming services because the people who are programming these, these uh, uh, playlists, to a great extent, are not very knowledgeable. Uh, they're often... I mean, the person who does this at, at, uh, at Apple Music is programming blues, Americana, and classical. How, how, knowledgeable, how knowledgeable can she be about right. any of these things? She's as nice as she can be, and she's trying really hard. But if I show her a, a, a radio playlist, she can say, okay, well, that must be something that blues fans want to hear. Uh, luckily, we do well with radio, so we had the top two items on that playlist but we always have something in the top five or ten uh, and so hopefully that will make a difference i'm send i send press clips i send touring information they won't let me talk to the curators they will only let me talk to the people who then convey the information to the curators because they don't want us lobbying the curators which is exactly what we want to do but beyond that a lot of our older fans don't want to stream music they want to own music if there were a record store on the corner, they'd be there every day, mm -hmm. but there isn't. So when record stores started closing, which was exactly when illegal downloading started right. in 1999, and they closed in droves, uh, then and then even bookstores that had music like Border, wonderful Borders chain, went out of business. Uh, they were very supportive for for us and for a lot of independent labels. So our customers tend to buy less and less music, partly because they have a lot of music, partly because they're not being exposed to a lot more new music, uh, and, and partly because they're getting old. And getting them to migrate to streaming services is tough. Right. Um, it, it's, this is one of the reasons why blues and jazz and classical and traditional folk music and world music all get short shrift on the streaming services because they're going for big hits they want to have that new, you know, that new Jay-Z uh, single, and they want to have literally a billion people streaming it in the first week, or a billion streams right. because people are playing it over and over. The 100,000 people who might sign up for, or less, who might sign up for a blues playlist are of much less interest to them. You know, they, it's economics. It's not, they're, they're not trying to screw us. They're just trying to go with what works for them. 
What is the positive in the blues right now, as far as you see? Well, there are a couple things. First of all, there's some good young artists coming up. Not as many as I'd like, but but some really substantial artists. Recently, you know, we released our second album by Selwyn Birchwood, mm-hmm. who by blues standards, although he's over 30, is, is a young artist uh, and who's being very creative and writing full albums of, of very original and interesting blues material that's quite contemporary. Uh, we recently signed and released the first album by our first Canadian artist. <laughs> what took you so long? <laughs> She had to move to Austin. <laughs> Part of the problem is it's very hard for Canadians to tour in the States. Mm-hmm. And the States is our biggest market. You know, this it has to do with visas and things that are really out of our control. So we signed Lindsay Beaver, originally from Halifax, then from Toronto, now from Austin. Right. And she's been touring across the U.S. and Canada, you know, just busting butt, trying to get in front of audiences. And she's not as prolific a writer as Selwyn is, but she wrote about half of her new album, and she'll probably write the whole of her next album. Uh, we've I, there, There's an exciting young artist uh, you've probably heard of named Christone Ingram, who they call Kingfish, from Mississippi. And there are, there are some interesting artists. Jontavius Willis uh, from, I think, Georgia is an interesting acoustic blues artist. Uh, and there's uh, a, a very good harmon- young harmonica player from Virginia whose name is escaping me, uh, Andrew Allen, maybe. Um, and, and I'm hearing other artists around the country. Um, the bin to your right of where you're sitting is full of uh, demos and submitted material, which I listen to, listening for artists who have a vision and who don't just want to rehash what's already been done in blues. So do you still listen to everything that's sent to you? I don't listen to all of everything that's sent to me, <laughs> right, but I right. listen to some of everything that's sent to me. Right. If I put on a hip-hop record, then I will tell you that even though I'm curious about hip-hop, I have no hip-hop aesthetic, I will listen until they either use uh, the MF word or use the N word. And once that happens, I'll take it off. So usually I listen to no more than a minute. <laughs> I don't understand why people want to use that kind of language yeah. uh, in in records, I guess, to, you know, to be shocking. But they've shocked me out of being further interested because I think it's cheap. Okay, so do you listen to? I any- also don't. I'm not very interested in hoes and bitches. You know, right. <laughs> I actually think women are equal opportunity human beings. In your spare time, do you listen to anything other than blues? Okay, and show tunes? Uh, no, I I know the show tunes. <laughs> um, I listen to uh, some Americana. Uh, I listen to a little bit of rock, uh, although rock has moved further and further from its blues roots mm-hmm. and is less and less interesting to me. The worst thing that ever happened to music worldwide is disco. Uh, and disco hasn't died. It just morphed into dance rock. Right. So ever since they started programming beats so they fell exactly squarely on the one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and they literally will move. Initially, they moved the snare drums so they were perfectly on time. Then they discovered they could program drums and they didn't need drummers at all. <laughs> And those would be exactly squarely on time. And when I say squarely, I mean square as in the old sense of square, like not hip, square. <laughs> you know, human beings, when they play music, don't play music exactly, precisely, squarely on the beat. Songs speed up or slow down a little bit with intensity and with ten, tends to be blues that vocals are played a little slower and then they pick up a little bit of time in the solo and then settle it back down in the vocal. 
Or like Hound Dog Taylor, where everything just sped up as it went along because people were dancing and they danced in a more agitated manner as the song got faster and faster. He didn't think about it. He just did it. It felt right. Uh, if you if you put your hand on your heart and you hear your heartbeat, your heartbeat is not one, two, three, four. It's ka-thump, ka-thump, ka-thump. Well, guess what that beat is? It's a shuffle. It's a blues beat. Human rhythms are not square rhythms mm-hmm. but dance rock and hip-hop and originally disco are exactly built on having these very square very rigid rhythms and it seems to me to be anti-human i don't know why this continues <laughs> but i will say this the one time i went to a disco i had a, a girlfriend whose best friend was a gay guy and one night we indulged in some substance abuse and went together to a mostly gay disco. And I, who can't dance at all, except Hound Dog Taylor, I, who can't dance at all, could dance because the beat was pulsing through the floor and the hi-hat was pulsing through the all the treble range. So even I could find the beat. <laughs> um, so, so disco is wonderful and dance rock is wonderful for people who really can't dance. For people who can dance, human time is much better. <laughs> So, so th- at any rate, uh, you know, this is one of the things that I have to overcome, you know, in, in, in the world, because rock and roll has become much more influenced by disco than by blues and country and traditional rock and roll than it, it used to be. I need to wrap up soon, but I just want to talk to you a little bit about yeah, your, your book. Tell me about how that came about and what that experience was like for you to to do this because I can't imagine it's an easy process to write a book. Well, the book took only about eight years. Uh, I met Patrick Roberts, my co-author, who deserves tons of credit, uh, at a book launch uh, event for his last book, which was uh, called Give Him Soul, Richard, which was written based on interviews with a pioneering black Chicago DJ named Richard Stams. And Patrick met me. He knew who I was. And he said, gee, we should do a book together. Now, I, people had said, you've got great stories. You know, you can, you can talk about being in the studio with Albert Collins and the first Little Ed, the Blues Imperials recording session and all kinds of, uh, of colorful stories about, about blues and about the business. You should write a book. And I thought, yeah, yeah, one of these days. You know, it seemed like it required an awful lot of self-discipline. <laughs> <laughs> so Patrick came over to my house with a recorder. And in the course of, I don't know, two and a half years, recorded 100 hours of me talking. Uh, and then we paid people to transcribe it. And then I saw how silly some of the things that, that sound good in conversation look on paper. <laughs> and Patrick took the scissors and scotch tape and began organizing a book. And then we reorganized the book. And then we rewrote vast swaths of it. Uh, but it started with these interviews. If it had started with me having to sit down at a keyboard and write, it never would have happened. And Patrick's a real professional writer. So he was able to help with focusing, with making the stories clearer, with eliminating extraneous stuff. We had bitter fights. Uh, there was almost a year when we hardly talked to each other. Uh, but About content? About approach? Yes, and about organization. And about what should be emphasized, and and we were um, 
you know, I was ready to, to tear up the contract. We got a contract with the University of Chicago Press and, and walk away from it all uh, at certain points. And now I'm really glad I didn't. The, the rewriting took a year and a half, uh, and it was only uh, technically issued at the end of October, so very recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far, it's got a very good response. Um, people are telling me that it's an essential book for anybody interested in blues or in the independent record business because both Patrick and the publisher encouraged me to spend time talking about building the company and about what it means to have an independent label now and then and how things have changed. So some of it is the the story of some success and some struggle. I mean, right now is a struggle time, but I should say this about my battles with with the streaming services, it's slowly getting better. Um, we're getting a little more attention at the streaming services. We're, we've, we've done some things to help with the company's expenses. And we're, we've had a, a few years in the red, you know, where we've lost money. Uh, and we've now, I think, crawled back into the black literally this year. Wow. When you went through the process of reliving your life and telling these stories was it was it easy was it some difficult moments to relive because i know you've lost a lot of your artists well yeah there's a lot of death um but mostly i you know i glory in the in the lives of the artists uh you know i've I've worked with some very much larger than life extremely creative very soulful people and I know sometimes more about them than the average fan would mm-hmm. because I wasn't just in the studio with them. Uh, you know, people came and and spent nights in at my home. They spent, you know, we sat up half the night talking and listened to old records. People talked, artists talked to me about what's going on in the rest of their lives. Um, Hound Dog Taylor, who was known as being one of the happiest guys in the blues, you know, and his music just brings a huge grin to your face. Privately, was often very troubled. He had a terrible time sleeping. He would sleep with the lights on and the TV on, and he would have nightmares about being chased by packs of wild dogs. Um, there was a very dark side and a very self-deprecating side to him. Uh, you know, he had problems with his own view of self-worth. Well, you never knew that seeing him on stage. Seeing him on stage, he was just having fun. Mm-hmm. He loved being the center of attention. It was when he was by himself that he began to to brood. Um, and you know, I'm trying to talk some about what these people were like when they weren't on stage, when they weren't in their public stance or their, their professional mode, but when they were driving down the highway for 500 miles and I was in the seat next to them. And so I, I wanted to capture some of that. I've had some uh, very difficult experiences with artists who left the label. And, and I took it very personally. Uh, and I go into that in the book. And then there was at least one artist uh, who I probably, through my own idiocy, drove from the label uh, by being, I used to have a terrible temper. And I'm very hard-headed. And I managed uh, to completely screw up a wonderful relationship without any help from the artist, all on my own. Uh, and I talk about that at great length in the book. You know, I talk, I, I, I've made a lot of mistakes. 
and, and I go into some detail about those. This is not, you know, always a pretty picture. What did you get out of the process, personally? Because of my father's death and because of all the death that's been around me, I've been very aware of legacy and very aware of the fact that as much as I intend to be immortal, I might not be. So I wanted to get some of this story in a, in a place where people could read it if I'm not around uh, and, and understand more of what I've understood. I hope that in the book, primarily, I'm a camera. I don't think people are that interested in me, but I've been in the presence of greatness. And if I can tell stories, if I can, can make you feel like you were in the presence of greatness, then I've succeeded. Uh, so this is part of my legacy. Uh, the other part is the recordings. And I wanted to say something about the positive side of the digital revolution. As a result of no longer needing to have music in a physical form, now the 47 years of alligator recording can be heard all over the world. iTunes, to their credit, and Apple, Apple uh, Music are now available in most countries in the world. And we just made a deal through a professional organization I'm involved with so that the entire alligator catalog will be available to stream in China. We've never been able to get into China before. This is, we've tried before, but already some highlights of our catalog are available to Chinese listeners. And you actually get paid. Uh, it's tiny amounts of money. Right. Yeah, I mean, my first royalty check from China was $2.24. But people find this music. People are compelled by this music. Uh, American music is, is a source of fascination to the whole world. Uh, there's something special about American music that means that in the case of blues, people who can't speak English can still feel the music. Well, I'm convinced that plenty of people in China will feel this music. How I'm going to get them to discover it, it's not going to be an easy process. It's going to take a long time. But to have it available, just to have the possibility that somebody in China or in Burkina Faso in, in Africa or in Kazakhstan uh, can find alligator music and discover it, that's thrilling. And because of digits, for the foreseeable future, this music is going to be available to everyone. That's a great thing. That's legacy. That means Hound Dog Taylor would be a thrilled and amazed that 50 years later, people will still want to hear his music. Well, now, hopefully, for another 100 years or 500 years, uh, people will be able to hear his music. And that which I have done, I should say, that which I have helped to make happen, mm -hmm. I didn't create the music. That which I've helped to do, being, Coco Taylor said, bless the bridge that carries you across. Well, I've tried to be the bridge. On one side is the artist, on the other side is the potential audience, and I've tried to bring them together. If this music continues to be available, then my job as a bridge will last for hundreds of years, my accomplishments as that bridge. And I'll be able to when I'm not here physically anymore, I'll still be sharing that music with human beings who are alive now and will be alive in the future. That's a pretty exciting thing to say about your life. That's for sure. Um, I want to close off one by saying one thing. Um, I went to some hard times with my 
eyes recently, and you were very kind to reach out on a regular basis to see how I was doing. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me. So thank you for doing that, and thank you for doing this. I really appreciate I know you're a busy man, so appreciate you taking this time. I appreciate your, your taking the time to come see me. Um, I've been with a lot of people who have dealt with great difficulties in their lives, and I've been extraordinarily lucky to not have at least physical dif- difficulties in mine yet. And, uh, and I know uh, I have a sense of what it's like to discover yourself impaired and not be able to be 100% of yourself. Uh, and it's a, it's a battle. So my heart goes out to everyone who goes through that. But just, just the, um, the fact that you reached out on a regular well, basis meant a great sure, deal to but, me. So thank you, you so Well, much. you're welcome. But, you know, we're not a big gang here. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you're, you're a very positive part of our community. Uh, you know, you do things that have positive effects on other people. Um, you know, Jody Williams passed mm-hmm. the other day. Um, and I knew that was coming. And I knew that if there wasn't uh, an obituary sent out to the media, that people wouldn't know. Right. So we knew this was happening in advance. We prepared the obituary. We got photos. Um, and, you know, we, we got uh, even knew who the survivors were going to be. And we're ready when when we got the word. Hopefully, I mean, it's it, it just went out the other day. Hopefully, it's going to get picked up enough so that the last thing that happens to Jody, or let me say the second to last thing that happens to Jody, will be people honoring him from that. Mm-hmm. The last thing that will happen is people will see your video. Yeah. And you will honor him again. Definitely. So that's why you're a more important part of our community than some other people. Thank you. Thank, and thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it, it, it's my pleasure. This is much more fun than working. <laughs> well, you're going to have to get back to work now. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>